and uh, learning some civics from the Bible. We're going to begin reading at verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him, then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me, or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to grow in our understanding of your word, to be able to apply it more and more consistently. And we pray that your word would prosper in our lives, that it would prosper in the church worldwide, that you would cause it to prosper uh, in our nation, that nation after nation and king after king uh, would find himself sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, would find himself submitting uh, to uh, your rule. We love you, we bless you, we continue to commit this time to you and ask that you would bless this, the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last month I received a very polite letter from uh, Senator Ben Nelson. Uh, He was responding to a letter that I had sent that was uh, talking about some potential uh, violations of the Bill of Rights uh, that as various agencies were seeking to enforce the Patriot Act. And in the first two paragraphs, he basically said that terrorism necessitates the Patriot Act. But here's what he said in the fourth paragraph. I do share your serious concern regarding the effect increased national security could have on civil liberties. I believe there is a delicate balance to be achieved between liberty and security. Yet this is not the first time in history our individual liberties have been challenged. Since our nation's birth more than 225 years ago, we have weathered events when our national security seemed to demand some sacrifice of the rights we hold dear. But now, more than ever, we find ourselves weighing the relative merits of the freedoms we have enjoyed in the past against the need for safety and security in our lives. I especially found interesting that phrase, our national security seemed to demand some sacrifice of the rights we hold dear, and also his uh, reference to the need to weigh, quote, the relative merits of the freedoms we have enjoyed against the need for safety and security. Now, here are some questions that immediately came to my mind. Are those rights inalienable, or are those rights revocable? And if they are revocable... Uh, How long till we get those rights back? Are these God-given rights 
or are they government-granted privileges? And if they are God-granted rights, where can we find any uh, passage that indicates that those rights can be retracted at all? <clears throat> Is it sometimes necessary to take away freedoms in order to have stability and to have a safety? Now, these are questions in my mind that are easy to answer, but some people struggle with the answers to these uh, questions. President Thomas Jefferson once said, those who suffer, uh, excuse me, those who surrender freedom for security will not have, nor do they deserve, either one. I think that's a profound statement. He said, those who surrender freedom for security will not have, nor do they deserve, either one. Now, the title for today's sermon is not very creative, it's kind of a long, a long title, but it's watch out when state security trumps God-given rights. And the Patriot Act is not the only act which is stripping away liberties from uh, citizens. Uh, there are any number of agencies that are doing the same thing, FEMA, OSHA, EPA, other agencies that are taking away uh, individual liberties from citizens, and in their place they are offering safety and security. Now, when you think about that, there is a certain element of truth to it. Probably the safest and most secure position an individual could be in would be to be a slave, right? Because he doesn't have to think about the future. When the Israelites went out and they were given liberty by the Lord, they were constantly wanting to go back to Egypt, back to slavery is basically what they were wanting. Why? Because they didn't have to worry where their next meal was going to come from. There are certain dangers, there are certain risks involved in living under liberty rather than living under slavery. And what King Saul illustrates in this chapter is exactly the same dynamic that countries have wrestled with for thousands of years. Uh, back in 2006, uh, Tony Blair, who was the uh, labor leader of in uh, uh, England, was interviewed by Matthew Doncona uh, for the Sunday Telegraph, and Blair said he had been reading the Bible, he had been reading the passage on Pilate, and he said, Pilate is the archetypal politician, caught on the horns of an age-old political dilemma. It is not always clear, even in retrospect, what is in truth right. Should we do what appears principled or what is politically expedient? And in this chapter, Saul does what is politically expedient, especially what's political, politically expedient uh, for the survival of his dynasty. And any time countries uh, allow or make state security trump God-given rights, there is some degree of tyranny that is beginning to be imposed upon that nation. Now, I say God-given rights because a lot of things that are called rights, the Bible would not call rights. Okay, and a lot of things that people say, this is my liberty, this is my freedom, the Bible would call that slavery. So we're talking about God-given uh, rights here. Uh, I'm not a fan of Rush Limbaugh, but I think he was correct when he said, to constrict freedom in the interest of security is to slowly erode the very foundation on which the country is built. And I, I think he's right. And I want to look at the erosions of Israelite liberty under the rule of Saul and compare it to today because I think there's a lot of parallels that you can see between that country and what's happening today. These are 12 points by which any country uh, can be tested. And let's begin at verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, 
So there have been spies out looking for David, and as soon as they discover where he is, they report back to Saul. And here is the irony that this whole passage confronts us with. Saul treats David as an enemy who needs to be hunted down, and he treats Doeg the Edomite as a friend who needs to be financially rewarded. And that's weird, weird in the extreme. David is a patriot, okay? He's a constitutional patriot, whereas Doeg is an unconstitutional Edomite. How is it that this alien has been rewarded more than David has? David has been willing to lay down his life for his country, and even for Saul. I mean, it's just amazing the degree of loyalty that David had uh, for Saul. Whereas Doeg ends up being a terrorist uh, later on in this chapter, killing 85 pastors. Things are totally upside down here. But any time the demonic is involved, you can expect that things will be upside down. We should not be surprised when America rewards illegal aliens more with more benefits than many citizens have. We should not be surprised when America sends hundreds of billions of dollars to Saudi Arabia, which has been uh, probably one of the top two persecutors of Christians uh, in, in, in our generation, or that sides with al-Qaeda forces in Libya or ends up on the wrong side of conflicts many, many times worldwide. It shouldn't surprise us. Apart from the wisdom of God and the grace of God, this is the direction that leaders will tend to go in. This is one of the reasons why David later says, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Those are absolute essentials. Why? Because otherwise, it's so easy uh, for, for there to be a downward slide into tyranny. But uh, we need to watch out when the doegs of this world are treated well and the Davids of the world are slandered. Back uh, during the last uh, election cycle, uh, some of you may remember the MIAC report in Missouri in which uh, patriots like Ron Paul and Bob Barr and, and uh, Tea Party people were profiled as being extremely dangerous right-wing extremists that law enforcement agents should keep their eyes on. Now, they did apologize for it later, but this report taught officers to view people with suspicion if they, quote, had anger toward the Federal Reserve System. Now, one of the interesting things, this is a report against terrorism. There wasn't any mention of uh, Islamic uh, terrorist cells, uh, which they're some of the, the biggest ones, but apparently you cannot speak against Islam in our country. Homosexuals are honored, while many times uh, homeschoolers are arrested in various states. And so these irrational uh, actions show that spiritual warfare prayer needs to be a part of our strategy uh, when we're dealing uh, in the political arena. This is more than a flesh and blood irrationality. The irrationality in America has Satan written all over it. Now the second thing that we see in this passage is that the security of Saul's administration is uppermost, not the security of the citizens. Now, some people say, well, security of the state, security of the citizen, that's the same thing, isn't it? No, they're quite different things, quite different things. Verse 6 goes on to say, Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Now, three things to notice here. First of all, Saul is the center, not only of this verse, but of his entire speech. Eight times... In two verses, he uses the word me and my. And uh, I think his self-centeredness can be seen in the phrase that was quoted by Bill earlier. He says, not one of you is sorry for me. 
For Saul, it's all about me. Second thing to notice is that everyone here is spoken of as his servants. This is repeated in verses 7, 8, and 9. He even calls David his servant. So everything is serving his administration rather than him being a servant of the people. And the third thing that any Jew back in those days would have noticed is that Saul is up in Gibeah at the very time that the Philistines are ravaging the country down at Calah. And we're going to be seeing he didn't come down to Calah until he finds out that David is there fighting against the Philistines. Then he comes down to fight against David. So Saul's concern really isn't about the citizens. It's the welfare of the state, the survival of his administration that he's most concerned about. People aren't really afraid of David. They know he's a good guy. So what is the, 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 the thing that's uh, being feared here? Saul is the one who is afraid of David, not the people. And I think that's something we should evaluate America on too. Is the concern for cons uh, security and stability really about the citizens, or is it for the perpetuation of the industrial military complex that has benefited to the tune of billions of dollars in every war uh, you know, that uh, uh, we've engaged in for many, many years. So is it really America's security that we're in the Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and a host of other countries? Now, please forgive me if I tend to be a little bit skeptical on, on some of these issues. I think Afghanistan, there's some good arguments for that. But any time the administration, wh whether it's Republican, Democrat, I don't care, they, they want us to to support war in some distant country, I'm always asking two questions. First of all, where is the evidence that our geographical borders are being threatened by the people that we are warring against? And secondly, who's benefiting financially from this war? Where is the money flowing to? I think good questions to ask. A third thing that we see in this passage is cronyism. Cronyism is giving favor to friends and loyal individuals at public expense. Now, you could be giving them money, or business opportunities, or special legislative favors or positions. But take a look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Now the implication is David would not do that. Saul rightly knows David's character. David never engages in this redistribution of wealth like Saul did. Saul's administration was always enriching uh, his friends. And he's indicating here that uh, David would not do that. Saul probably would have approved the massive federal bailouts uh, that have gone on in recent years. Three things to notice in that verse. First, his officers were all Benjamites, people from his tribe. So there's a kind of favoritism there. Second, this mention of the son of Jesse in connection with the fields and vineyards is significant. By this time, many of these officers have been rewarded with the fields that came from Jesse, who had them confiscated from him, and he's now fled from the country. The third thing to notice is that every one of the people on the administration had benefited both by the fields and by the positions that they had been placed into. They were all compromised, which meant they did not have a moral leg to stand on to criticize the administration. If they criticize what Saul is doing is wrong here because it's just like going over the edge, they're going to be implicated because they've been involved in much the same thing themselves. Saul says, every one of you, and make you all, implying that every one of them had benefited from this cronyism. It pays to be in politics 
when you're in Saul's administration. Now, of course, that whole verse has a fourth problematic assumption in mind, the assumption that the property is a feudal grant from the government. Saul was letting these guys live on their lands. Okay, uh, He gave them their lands, and Saul was not letting Jesse, David's father, live on his land. Now, he may have had his own unique ways of rationalizing the socialistic assumption, but it's still very similar to the modern assumptions that underline taxes, eminent domain, and licensing. Now, you may think that you own your properties, but unless you're one of those very rare individuals that has a loyal title to your property, and I think it's probably only Nevada and Texas that still have that, though there may be some questions. You can talk with me about that later. But unless you're one of those rare people that, that have that, you really don't uh, own your property. Uh, a loyal ownership is absolute ownership of land as opposed to feudal ownership. Feudal ownership, your ownership is subject to a relationship with a lord or with a sovereign. Now, in ancient Israel, they had a loyal title to their property. And kings, to one degree or another, tried to erode uh, these alloidal rights of the people. You can think of Ahab. Uh, he wanted Naboth to give his land to him. Naboth refused. And this indicates, I mean, here's a tyrant. He doesn't dare take away this land from Naboth because alloidal rights to property were so entrenched in Israelite thinking, he didn't think he had the right. It took a, a foreigner, Jezebel, uh, to come in and say, what are you talking about? Just take it from him. You know, she kills him, gives the land uh, to him, and that's in First, that's in first uh, Kings chapter 21. So it was not a feudal ownership of land, it was an alloidal ownership. Now, if you have alloidal ownership, your property cannot be taxed because taxation implies that the government has a feudal-type relationship to your land. And if you don't pay your taxes, the government can confiscate your land. Well, all the way back in chapter 8, God had warned the people that Saul was going to try to gain this feudal kind of a control uh, over the land. And so Rushdoony rightly points out all property taxes are by definition theft. They are theft. The ability to tax our property implies that the government has a vested interest in our property. The ability to confiscate our property implies the same assumption. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but this assumption lies at the bottom of many practices in virtually all dictatorships around the world. Now, older statesmen understood this, and they resisted the idea that the government could own, could have an interest in, or could tax your property. Daniel Webster said, an unlimited power to tax involves necessarily the power to destroy. Now, he lived back in 1782 through 1852. He says, government doesn't have an unlimited power to tax. Now, let me contrast that quote with a quote from our Supreme Court. And the, 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 the case was written by Supreme Court Justice Lewis F. Powell, who died in 1998. He said, the power to tax is virtually without limitation. Complete opposites, virtually without limitation. Now, if that's true, we have been in a great deal of trouble for the last whole century. Uh, in uh, 1931, there was a Supreme Court decision, and I've read this one. It's Coolidge v. Long. Owen J. Roberts said, A state's power to tax property is plenary. Well, let me explain the word plenary. It means 
uh, extending to the whole, complete, extending to every part. So we speak of plenary inspiration of the Bible because it's not just the general ideas that are inspired there. No, it's every letter, every word. Plenary means the whole of the Scripture in the Hebrew and the Greek has been inspired. Now, if the state has uh, the power to tax that is plenary, that means it can tax anything that it wants. Absolutely anything. Some of you are businessmen. You know what it feels like to have your tools taxed and uh, the use of your tools to be taxed. Now, in case you think this is an exaggeration, let me read you the full paragraph from that Supreme Court decision. <clears throat> it says, A state's power to tax property is plenary. The power to tax it as a whole necessarily embraces the power to tax any of its incidents or the use or the enjoyment of them, provided only that the taxable occasion does not antedate the taxing statute so as to render it invalid because retroactive. If the property itself may constitutionally be taxed, obviously it is competent to tax the use of it. And he gives uh, three court case decisions previously. Or to tax the gift of it. And he gives a precedent. And if the gift of it may be taxed, it's difficult to see upon what constitutional grounds the power to tax the receipt of it, whether as the result of inheritance or otherwise, may be denied to a state, whatever name may be given the tax, and even though the right to receive it as distinguished from its actual receipt at a future date antedated the statute. Wow. Supreme Court was basically saying that the state can tax anything it jolly well pleases. Now, I've got another Supreme Court opinion that said, the power to tax is the one great power upon which the whole national fabric is based. It is as necessary to the existence and prosperity of a nation as is the air he breathes to the natural man. It is not only the power to destroy, but it is also the power to keep alive. Now, what are the implications of this? Rush Dooney says that this position virtually deifies the state. So some of these statists have actually had the audacity to talk about stewardship to the state. Now, we understand the concept of stewardship. We are stewards of everything we possess. It means we don't possess it absolutely. It all belongs to God, and God has given us a stewardship trust of this land. So we're stewards because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, these theoreticians are saying, no, we are stewards to the state, which implies that the state, that the, yeah, the state owns the, the, the earth is, is the state's and the fullness thereof, right? They own, uh, they own everything. And in arguing against Fletcher on this point, Herbert Schlossberg says, his position makes sense only if the state is the Lord who is the real owner of everything. The offering formula prayer, we're talking about church offerings that are collected, the offering formula prayer, we give thee but thine own, is a declaration that the steward is only rendering to God what he already possesses legally. The steward is declaring recognition of his stewardship and affirming that his relationship with God is a steward to a Lord. But to say that taxation is stewardship is to affirm that the state is the Lord to which everything has the status of property. The citizen is transformed thus into a servant, supplicant, worshiper. And of course, we're going to be seeing in a little bit that the soul treats everybody as his servant. 
right? It's exactly what we're going to see. According to the Bible, the state does not own everything, that may not tax everything, has very limited jurisdiction, and is in rebellion against God when it oversteps those jurisdictions. Now, here's a key point. You can judge the degree of liberty in any given nation by its philosophy of property. This is an absolutely critical point, and yet most Christians are completely oblivious of it. They just assume, yeah, the state has the right to do these things. But it's, it's, there's a more fundamental issue than the, 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 the act of taxation. It's the philosophy behind that taxation that we're, we're getting at in this passage. Now, the fifth thing that we see in this passage is that patriotism was redefined by Saul as loyalty to him. Look at verse 8. All of you have conspired against me. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that a, a rather harsh, strong word to be used? Conspired when these guys have not dared to say a word against Saul. But from Saul's perspective, if they're not doing everything that he wants them to do, then they're not loyal to him. From his perspective, it is a conspiracy. And he's shortly going to be testing them on this. Uh, They don't say a word for good reason. Their necks uh, could be on the line. Thomas Jefferson said, When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. Anytime the fear of government is greater than the uh, the fear of criminals, you've got a bad state of affairs in that nation. Obviously, there are many nations that are troubled far worse than ours on this, but these are simply points by which you can judge the relative tyranny that's going on in any nation. Now, of course, Saul's ridiculous redefinition of the term conspiracy is a common ploy of tyrants as well. I've read through some of the speeches of communist leaders and fascist leaders, even some of our own leaders, and it's just fascinating to watch them redefine language in a way that uh, kind of sidelines and um, uh, kind of marginalizes anybody that opposes them or or that's upsetting the status quo. Spin doctors in the media will label Tea Party advocates as racist. Now, it doesn't matter whether there's maybe not a shred of evidence that they're racist. The very use of that term is going to make a whole bunch of people say, man, I'm not touching them with a 10-foot pole. And so they've succeeded just by the use of terms. The media has very cleverly used the term fundamentalist to describe some of the uh, the, 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 the radical uh, Muslims. And they don't use that term of themselves, but They use the word fundamentalist for them, and then they'll use the word fundamentalist for Bible-believing Christians. I mean, it's just a misuse of terms. But if you want to read a fun analysis of the psychological warfare with words, read some of George Orwell's writings. Um, The liberals today have become masters of it. Now, you might be considered a conspiratorialist if you believe that the Federal Reserve ought to be audited. That makes you a conspiratorialist? I mean, isn't auditing something we all do? Or you might be considered a right-wing extremist if you believe that we ought to go back to the original intent of the Constitution. Or anti-choice if you're pro-life. Or homophobic if you stand up for biblical values. And then they soften their own sins by dignifying sodomy as being gay rights, right? And lechers as being free speech advocates and baby murderers as being women's rights advocates, etc. The more you understand the psychological warfare used by tyrants and redefining terms, the less you're going to be manipulated by those words. The seventh thing that I see in this passage is Saul's full approval of spying on anyone and everyone, except himself, of course. But verse 8 goes on to say, 
And there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So he wants everybody spying on everybody, including on his own son, Jonathan. This is just an amazing, uh, amazing thing. Now, these soldiers, they have a hard time doing that. They're, they're, just, they're not willing to fight against Saul, but they have a hard time actually doing that spying for him. But citizens are constantly being spied on by governments today. Uh, you're maybe familiar with the Psyguard technology in England that is being used uh, to uh, not only monitor all of the public conversations going on, but to analyze it so that if there's any, I think what they call antisocial um, conversations happening, instantly it triggers and notifies who's doing it to the police, security guards, and store owners. Uh, you're maybe uh, familiar with the data retention directive in the European um, uh, Parliament. According to a Washington Post article, America now has the most sophisticated surveillance, data storage, data analysis on its own citizens that it's ever had in American uh, history. These are all signs that the state has become more interested in protecting its own interests than it is in protecting the citizens. Because if you're spying on the citizens, who's the enemy? I mean, it's the citizens that are the suspects, aren't they? And um, I should hasten to say that just because there's one or two of these that are true, uh, one of these two of these 12 points that are true of a given nation uh, is not the definitive point. But when a majority of these points are true of any given country, it is fast becoming the kind of government that Saul had, a, a government rejected by God. Now, the eighth thing I see in this passage is that Saul interprets any failure to quickly get on board with his program as ominous, very ominous. It's ludicrous for him to broad brush paint these people with a statement, all of you have conspired against me, or to suggest that Jonathan's trying to have a coup, or to suggest that Jonathan's trying to kill him, which is what is meant by lie in wait. He's accusing Jonathan of trying to kill him or to suggest that they were all complicit in Jonathan and David's rebellion if they don't instantly give him all the information that he wants. This is paranoia. So Saul is projecting his own ominous attitudes onto everyone else. And governments that have been involved in backroom deals, surreptitious removal of liberties, paying off of agencies, other criminal behaviors, they're going to tend to have a suspicion everybody else is as unethical as they are. Their own ungodly behavior breeds paranoia. I've studied a few of the petty dictators of Africa and South America. This is a tendency that you see in all of them. They may start off pretty good, start off with limited government, maybe good intentions, but over time they begin to have more and more of these 12 points characteristic of their regime. Actually, next week we're going to be seeing there's more indicators. Uh, We're going to be seeing several more in the rest of the chapter, violations of the First and Second Amendments in, in, in our Bill of Rights. But for now, let's just move on to the ninth point. The ninth thing that should be examined is the issue of who is getting served. Now, typically, the further away from God that a government becomes, the more the biblical concept of leadership completely gets turned upside down. It gets inverted. Christ says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. 
Now, when we have servant leadership, we see ourselves as servants first and foremost to God, and then secondarily, we become servants of others. We sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. Now, what Christ is describing is pagan leaders who did the exact opposite. They're sacrificing others for the benefit of themselves, which is exactly what Saul is doing here. They want everyone to serve them. And yet, despite the self-serving character, they've got the audacity to call it benefactors. They want to be considered generous, right? They're benefactors. I'm doing this for your good. This was proto-socialism, redistribution of wealth. Tyrants think that's being generous. But you know, theft is hardly generosity, and all socialism is theft. Now, if Saul had been giving these vineyards and fields from his own properties, uh, that would be one thing. But no, he's taking the properties of others and, and, and giving them out. And so the reality is, this tyrant thinks of himself not as a servant of the people, but them as servants. Saul refers to David as my servant. He's outraged that David would thwart his will. His thought is, David's whole existence is to serve me, and no one is exempt. Even Jonathan's loyalty is questioned by Saul when his son does the constitutionally right thing. He doesn't kill David or turn David over. It's the constitutionally right thing, but he's outraged over that. Later, when Saul's servants refuse to kill the priests, he gets upset. Now, let's just stick, though, to verses 6 through 10. I don't think it's by accident that every single reference to servanthood here is a reference to being servants of Saul or serving Saul. This is in such stark contrast to the biblical language. I don't think it's by accident that he's doing it. The greatest civil magistrate in the Old Testament, you could not think of a guy with more power, uh, more greatness than Moses, And yet, 21 times, the Bible describes Moses as a servant of God. And because he was first and foremost a servant of God, he became the ultimate servant of the people. For example, in Numbers 16, 15, Moses says, I've not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. He didn't even take pay, let alone a massive retirement settlement. Now, I'm not opposed to civil servants getting a good wage. I think you could justify that from the Bible. But my only point is to to judge the degree to which a candidate has a servant's heart. Now, how are most of the people on local, state, and national levels measuring up so far on these 12 points? I don't think it's very good from my perspective anyway. Uh, Not very good at all. But I think an even better question is, how do you and how do we uh, measure up to this standard of biblical leadership? Do we have servant hearts? It really needs to be... Uh, servanthood uh, that, um, that, we are, uh, that we are all about. There's a tenth principle by which we can evaluate political leaders, and that is the degree to which manipulation replaces statesmanship. Now, when statesmen rule, there's still going to be differences of opinion. I don't think there's ever going to be a time in history where there probably won't be some differences of opinion. But those differences can continue to exist and or they're ironed out through dialogue. Now, in complete contrast to that, Niccolo Machiavelli, the Florentine uh, political thinker of the 16th century, what he did, he wrote a book. He mapped out a philosophy and a handbook for politicians on how they should engage in politics. And that philosophy advocated cunning, deceit, manipulation, the use of arbitrary raw power. Of course, he was simply systematizing what he had analyzed, and he said, this is the best way to rule. I mean, this has been the most successful down through history. But politics today is basically Machiavellian manipulation. 
At, at heart, that's really what it's about. It's politics in a nutshell. Commentators have noted the incredible manipulation uh, going on in verses 7 through 8. And I want you to look at those verses. I'm just going to try to summarize them for you. Saul says that they owe him for political favors that he's given. And he gives them hope that there's going to be more political favors coming. He assures them that all of these are going to be stripped away by David if David gets into power. Then he downplays his opponent. You know, he says, oh, he's the son of Jesse. He doesn't even name him by name. He always calls him the son of Jesse. Jesse's a nobody. It's a, it's a way of downplaying him. He makes a veiled threat in the first part of verse 8. He whines in the second part. He pictures himself as the victim in the third part. And he implies that extraordinary measures are needed because his life is in danger in the last part of verse 8. Not a shred of this is based on reality. It's propaganda. But it's a masterful piece of Machiavellian manipulation. And of course, uh, the power brokers of today are just as clever. If anyone tries to call Congress back to constitutional expenditures, boy, there's going to be a bunch of people make them out to be an ogre who's trying to steal food from the mouths of babies and mothers and the aged. If he cooperates, he's promised, you know, uh, to be on a prestigious committee. If he doesn't, there's always going to be veiled threats of being sidelined, having his career sunk. We've got a lot of examples of guilt by association. Now here, it's like, he's a nobody. He's associated with Jesse. Nobody knows who Jesse is. Well, there's other ways of guilt by association. Uh, the term racist or right-wing extremist is just manipulation. It's not dealing with the real issues. Now, of course, we could spend all day criticizing modern politicians for their duplicity in this, but are we doing exactly the same thing? That's a question we need to ask, because when we've got one finger pointing out there, there's three fingers pointing back. And let me tell you something. There are Machiavellian manipulators in families, in churches, and in states as well. And it ought not to be. Christians ought to be willing to lose if others are not convinced by the truth. They need to cause uh, to depend by faith on God and his truth to prevail but not engage in this kind of manipulation. No power plays. We need statesmen, not politics. The 11th thing that we see is illustrated in the life of Doeg in verses 9 through 10. Now, his decision to speak is not weighed by godly standards or methods or goals. He wants political advancement, and that's what politics is all about. It's a game, you know, for political advancement. Now, let's start reading at verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Do you notice anything odd about that statement? Let me read that again. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. Doeg's been given a huge advancement. Why don't you flip back to chapter 21 and uh, verse 7. This was uh, previously, it says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So previously, he was in charge of herdsmen. That was a pretty lowly status. Now he is set, the implication is by Saul, over all of the servants of Saul, including the servants that are gathered around Saul right then and there. This is a huge advancement that he has been that he has been given 
Um, something's happened between there, then and now, and I think that something is that Doeg has already told Saul what he's saying right here and a whole lot more. He's not giving Saul any new information. In fact, I think Saul is setting this whole thing up as a test to see whether people are going to side with him or not. He's got some information he's going to use to test uh, these other servants and see, are you willing to carry out the kinds of things that Doeg is willing to carry out for me? He doesn't need new information. In fact, if you look at verse 6, he'd already discovered exactly where David was, probably from Doeg. He's playing this charade to see who's loyal. But this is an amazing thing, that a non-citizen is second in command. (laughs) Second in command to Saul. I think you can draw your own applications for today. Uh, Anyway, this is, uh, that's just a side note. The main thing is that Doeg has already been promoted and is willing to kill all the priests in the rest of the chapter in order to get another promotion. Now let's keep reading, verse 9. And said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now Doeg could claim that everything that he said was true, but his goal of speaking this truth was to get David into trouble and to get into Saul's good graces. How many actions today are done behind closed drawers for the sole purpose of getting an advancement? And how many public actions are taken for the sole goal of getting an advancement? We may never know, uh, but uh, it's ever a temptation. When the state becomes all, everything begins to become subservient to the state, which is point number 12. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 19 next week and see how, you know, many of the rights in the First and the Second Amendments were stripped away in Saul's own country uh, back in his day. We're not going to get into those issues today. But I think if you evaluate our, our local, our state, and our national governments just on these first 12 principles that we've covered, you realize our nation is in a desperate need of prayer. Pray. Pray that our nation would repent. Pray that a Davidic kind of minimalism would be restored to civil government at every level, from the city to the the national. But pray also that family and church governments would be restored to a godly submission to King Jesus. A simple revival in the church is not going to be sufficient to reverse uh, the systemic problems we see in our nation. And by the way, an election of a constitutional president is not going to be sufficient to uh, restore or remove some of the systemic evils that we see in our nation. I am convinced, based on biblical evidence, that nothing short of a reformation where Christians' worldview thinking is changed and their actions are changed is going to be sufficient to remove the systemic problems that are all throughout our society. Politics is not the answer. Too many Christians think politics is the answer. We need to get involved in politics, but always depending upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so pray and work for such a reformation. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would bring such a reformation upon the church of Jesus Christ that they not only think biblically and in finances and in business and in family and in church, but they think biblically in civics and in uh, every area uh, of their lives. We pray that you would restore to the church a six-day creationism, that you would restore biblical counseling, biblical uh, leadership uh, uh, doctrines, uh, biblical everything. Father, help us to be people of the
the book. Send a reformation greater than any reformation that the world has seen for your own name's sake, for the glory and the lifting up of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that you would not allow yet another nation to be robbed from the heritage of Jesus. Father, is this not your Son to whom you have given all nations of the earth? We pray that you would not allow uh, yet another nation to completely fall away, but through your judgments, through your disciplines, that you would restore it as a, a jewel in the crown of King Jesus, that we would continue to be a nation that is a light set on a hill, that the, uh, the, the, the founders of our nation who had such a vision for what could be accomplished uh, would be accomplished in our own day. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.